Hello, and welcome to the Recovery Matters podcast from CCAR, the podcast where putting recovery first is always the goal. Here we present interviews, discussions, stories, and speeches to cultivate the understanding and acceptance of the power, hope, and healing of recovery from alcohol and other addictions. Here are your hosts, Phil and Sandy Valentine. Hi, Phil. Good morning, Sandy. <laughs> You're looking at me funny already. Well, I'm thinking about your clothing. What's what's up with my clothing? Because you have this C-cart. and this big trip in two weeks. Oh yeah, and going to the we, Persian Gulf. We received the Persian Gulf. Well, that's where Qatar's. Yes. Oh. You don't even know where I'm going. Just you'll know that. I, I won't be home for two or three weeks. I know I've been in the airport on the way to Africa. So do you, do you like it when I'm not at home? I do. Except for the dog care. Well, okay. But I don't feel tied into your happiness when you're not there. <laughs> so if you're miserable in Doha, there will be people there to handle you. You won't be miserable for me? No, I'll be no. busy. Okay. I'll be busy. But uh, we have to find you some bamboo pants, according to the listing. I don't even know what bamboo pants are, so I'm not, I don't know if I'm that interested. Linen was the other option, but that's not going to work for you. Kate, do you know what bamboo pants are? Oh, I'm getting a visual, and it's like like a tree and like fig leaves. I think Whole Foods carries them. Do you want to go clothes <laughs> shopping at Whole Foods? Uh, no. All right. How about we go clothes shopping at Costco? That could be an option, actually. Yeah. Yeah. But that's for the weekend. What we want to do today is talk to Kate Duffy. Kate, say hello. Introduce yourself. Hi, I'm Kate Duffy, and I am <laughs> not anonymous. Mm. Oh, I like that. I am a person on a path of discovery and recovery forever. It's a never-ending path for me, and I'm actually... So when I'm done, I'll be laying down. So you, you're a guest on this podcast that we've titled Recovery Matters, very cleverly, I might add. Is there a matter about recovery that you want to lead off with? Oh, yeah, sure. Uh-huh. Um, the number one thing I like to lead off with is the fact that the world is waiting for people to want it. And frosts me. Uh-huh. It's a physical, like, resistance um because i don't believe so i'll just speak for myself that i would want it until i started to have it yeah that's how i want to lead that's what matters to me most is people matter and the person who's most compromised in my case emotionally physically spiritually mentally always poisoning myself wanting to die but just not being afraid, right? So I looked it up, actually. I Googled it in my last six months, and it was passive suicide, and it freaked me out. And so I I just I suffered with that in my own head and heart because the disease prevented me from telling all of myself. So that's what, that's what matters to me, people. It's interesting you say that because I've heard now on, now that I've kind of been exploring the TikTok world and... <laughs> Instagram reels, and there's a lot of celebrities um, so assuredly saying that a person cannot achieve recovery until they're ready. 
I know. And, and I don't agree with that either, that I think we have an obligation to talk to people about recovery, let them know about recovery. Even back in the day, Father Martin used to say, um, you can lead a horse to water, and the classic saying is, but can't get them to drink. But Father Martin would change that to, you sure can make them thirsty. And, oh, yeah. and so I just see, I agree with you that that... That puts a lot of onus on the individual, right? That the individual didn't find recovery until they were ready. Now, there's also an element of truth that there has to be some willingness and all of that, but it's not as black and white as people make it out to seem. That's right. We create willingness. Mm -hmm. I create willingness. We can create wanting. And so just break it down. When people say, you know, they have to want it. Okay, what's it? It is to live. Uh -huh. And if you're shooting her yourself with heroin or driving drunk every day, or you, you don't want that. Uh -huh. The thing that people forget is, and so, yeah, do people have to take action and be absolutely, but you meet them creating the, creating an opportunity, creating an environment where only recovery is thriving is how people can want it. Cause it spills over. Like you just said, too, talking about it, honestly, I'll be, um, my anniversary is in April, and I love the way Sandy, well, one of you said, I think it was Sandy, I just celebrated nine years. I keep wanting to say I'm celebrating 10, but I love the idea of, like, I just celebrated nine. Uh -huh. And, you know, obviously a lot of reflecting always the first months before anniversaries, and, oh, I didn't even know what AA was or, or recovery. I literally, I, I was like, wait, wait, I'm an alcoholic? Like what? Uh, and the 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 even cognitive acceptance of that. I know there's a, there was the emotional resistance of it, the pushing back, right? The disease prevalent. But I was like, no, I drink really expensive wine. Like I didn't know that was a thing. What the? F I and I, you know, sorry. Oh, oh, I just really get you there because I remember going on dates with Phil for nine months to AA meetings and I was in Al-Anon and I had stopped drinking. But through those nine months, I came to the self-discovery that I was an alcoholic as well. And when I announced it to the group that I had been attending as a, an ally or a friend of recovery, I thought their jaws would drop because certainly they could not have perceived from the outside looking in that I could be one of those people, one of them. And I thought that I had betrayed them like, you know, a, a spy coming in. I'd been an alcoholic all along, but they had just been patiently waiting. They, you didn't get the reaction you expected because you wanted them to be like, no. Not you. Like, no. Yeah. Yeah. <sighs> So let's go back. Let's go back to when you were little. What were you like? I was, um, I was spirited and I was, um, you know, playful and spunky. And, but around five, I hear, I don't remember, but I'm told I stopped talking. <laughs> oh, there's no question in my mind that there was some trauma early on, probably pre-verbal in my discovery in the last 25 years, but I've kind of let go of what or how I, it finally doesn't matter to me. It made me who I am and I actually wouldn't change a thing. So, um, but I became sort of at 
probably from seven or eight up, which is where my fascination for early childhood came and why it was my degree and career. I wanted to understand kind of the domestication now that I understand it, right? As Don Miguel Ruiz says in The Four Agreements, we're domesticated and, we, you know, that spirit is sort of dimmed, right? So I was, I presented as a 10 to 16-year-old or 15-year-old shy, scared, depressed, completely only liking myself if you liked, if I uh -huh. thought you liked Mm -hmm. anyone around me so um yeah and that little girl can show up at things you know and that's a part of me still that I that I work with but yeah I got really insecure and and so the drinking at 14 and 15 brought me back to who I was it allowed me to talk to people and be the center of attention and be the spirit and the light that I knew I was so oh, I would say the darkness, if I could, uh, this is hindsight looking back, but it would be between probably eight and 14. Then it got really dark, but um, that's when I kind of started to shut down. What part of the country did you grow up in? I grew up in Massachusetts. So you're a New Englander and yep. describe the darkness, if you will, what that was like for you. What happened? I remember feeling like I didn't belong and what I mean by that is I used to feel like I used to ask was I adopted did you find me outside as a baby like there was some I didn't fit uh, I didn't know if I fit in my family or I didn't fit in America I just I wanted to I wanted my parents to tell me they found me on the steps and I'd be like okay so it was the aloneness I think again a lot of this hindsight it's all hindsight but I dissociated probably until eight years ago. No lie. I left the building. That's what, it, that's how it looked. It's, I wasn't present in my body. I'm really all. connecting to that. All my siblings. So I was born 14 years after a pack of four and they all left by the time I was eight. And so I knew why I didn't fit in because my nieces and nephews are my ages, right? My, my siblings were having babies my age and, and they all abandoned me by the time I was eight and gone. So those were my years as well, years of getting bullied. But but I I know what those things were. I was a little late to the party on the alcohol. I was 17, but same thing. Oh, now I can socialize. Now I can dance in front of strangers. Now I can do all the things. So if I met you in like, you know, in my... 40s I did a lot of healing I was seeking right seeking in the drink and also seeking spiritually mm -hmm. and we were partnered in a workshop and you told me that I because I've had experiences where people tell me how they know why they were feeling abandoned mm -hmm. so envious of that mm -hmm. because I I really more than that it happened I wanted to know why it um took me but yeah I I think that's really common mm -hmm. I, you sent uh, me down another trail because we've asked many, many guests about what they were like when they were little. And you used words that obviously you had thought a lot about or discovered about yourself. And I went to, well, it's all about me, right? So I went to be to kind of figure out how, what were the words I would use to describe myself at that age? I don't have any. Like what age? Me. Well, how were you were talking like two, three, four, five that you were told and discovered and I, 
don't have a lot of history about how I would describe myself. That's interesting. Have you? Do you have people you can ask? Well, no. Right now, you don't. I might, my sister might remember because we remember everything <laughs> about him and their yeah. life. Yeah. Yeah. Ask, 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 and look at pictures and feel in. Right. Sometimes yeah. we ask. We can ask sort of our smaller selves, but I had a. Well, I had a, that same answer actually, probably four or five years ago. Um, I did a lot of work in energy medicine in the last five and six years, like a full four year, like school. In that, that it was sort of like recovery 3.0 for me, you know, if, and it was in that work that I did a lot of this discovery. So I'm also fascinated with something you just said too about you were seeking spiritually and the drink, right? And the drink is also known as what? Spirits, right? That's also what alcohol is known as, is spirit. So a lot of times when we're seeking spiritually, we turn to alcohol, which is... And a lot of times it wouldn't occur to people to think that you could be doing both simultaneously, right? Describe what that was like for you. Yeah. And I got to, oh God, I love this. Um, my, I was married. I'm divorced now. My ex-husband works in the alcohol industry. So talk about spirits being around the house. Mm -hmm. And he bought our dream house in 2004 and it, we had a summer camp and horses and goats and sheep. And I mean, I was hundred percent had arrived and it was this idyllic 1843 farmhouse in Massachusetts. And we had this family business and it was, I was, I remember standing on the porch, holding a glass of wine, looking up. I had just come back from the Chopra center. I had done a deep dive with Deepak Chopra to find out what happened to me. What's the matter with me? that I feel this way. And I remember holding the glass of wine. I'm telling you, this was the most idyllic property ever. It was a huge dream. And I'm looking up and I'm like, really? Like, this is it. I was like mad. I had this, this hole, right? Which of course I didn't know then. this gaping hole that no amount of alcohol could fill. And that's what it was like for me. I was watching movies like, um, uh, going to the Chopra Center, you know, searching, uh, really believing in this, uh, putting together my spiritual beliefs really over those years and grabbing the bottle at the same time. I, I had a, a bad experiences in my marriage for a couple of years. And I physically remember going to the refrigerator and grabbing the big jug of the wine saying, come on, lover. Uh. I, as my marriage was falling apart, my relationship with alcohol was in, was taken off. That was my, that was my new husband. And for a couple of years we distanced and the shot up, drinking shot up. So, so it was, it was going on at the same time with spiritual sleep. At the Chopra Center, I snuck in like a bottle of wine tonight. We're meditating all day and, and I'm banging back, you know, chocolate and wine. Well, there you go. Um, so, <laughs> so what'd you fill the hole with? Is, oh. it, is it filled today? Oh, so what I filled the yeah. hole with is, yeah, it's filled today. So it's interesting. Um, I've been single on purpose for about five years uh, because I realized after I got sober, I found another relationship thinking literally like this is what you do. And I had the next layer of my recovery at three years sober. I had a very, very codependent relationship. I was in a relationship with an addict. 
process addiction, um, porn and the way I handled it, it taught me what did I do today? Right. And so the hole still was not filled. I was trying to fill it in another person. And when I discovered this addiction, I literally was like, okay, we'll do this together. You go to your 12 step meeting. Uh I'll go to my, we'll be recovered together. It'll be perfect. You know, that doesn't work that way. I was reading books and telling him who he should be and why, what he needed to do. And I had it all figured out, right? I needed Al-Anon. I didn't know that at the time, but um, I unraveled at a whole new level <laughs> as, as left that relationship. And that's when my, that's when I started to fill up. I said, okay, Kate, you're the common denominator. Mm-hmm. I ran to energy medicine school as I, I heard that that was sort of finding yourself. I wanted to know who I was and I felt I dated myself for a solid couple of years. I took myself on dates. I bought myself flowers. I treated myself the way I wanted to be treated. I fell completely madly in love with myself in a way that wasn't egotistical and moved to Rhode Island to be near the ocean. And, um, yeah, that's how I filled the hole is the, it's self-love. So the person with the no self-love is supposed to want it. <laughs> so I was just discussing self-love with somebody else recently. Um, and their partner was very frustrated that they couldn't just do it. Like, just just do it. Just decide you're going to love yourself and, and step out in confidence and, and all of that. And I just started laughing because if telling myself was going to do it, it, it would have worked a long time ago and I am farther down the road than I've ever been, but it, it, it's a thinking that I have to go through almost like rewiring when I feel it getting way too much skewed in the wrong direction. So how do you practice self-love? Yeah. So it is, a, it is actually, um, you know, I work with families now, the codependent side, and I'm, I'm literally saying, do you see these neural pathways? They're all new, you know, like that's what we're doing. Mm-hmm. Whether alcohol or drugs or cigarettes or sugar or a relationship, I feel like, and that takes time. Okay. I, I still study a lot. You know, I love learning about the brain mm-hmm. and the uh, what it means to be rewiring these neural pathways. And my practice is has increased every day when I learn more, right? So in the beginning, it was be, make sure I'm outside, make sure I'm with people that are like-minded, um, make sure I talk to myself nicely. I mean, we're talking lipstick on the mirror, messages on the mirror, post-its all around the house, you know, being part of communities that are doing this work. I've, I've invested in myself a lot around uh, being in communities that are, you know, retreats or intensives. It's been a, it was a big practice. And so now I have a very strong ritual morning and night. Of course I slip off of it mm-hmm. and I just a couple of other addictions along the way that I mentioned to you. I mean, when I quit cigarettes about five years ago, sugar was raging. Mm-hmm. So I am free from sugar. It'll be four years on April 20th. So that's how is it is a, it's a, for, the way I look at it is a forever journey. If I think of it as I'm going to hit the finish line, then that defeats the purpose for me. Uh-huh. Well, I have a qu- I have a whole different take on self-love. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you about it because I don't think you have this same issue. No, well, I often pose in recovery coach performance support sessions 
And I said, I ask, is it possible to love yourself? And I've come to the conclusion for me that I cannot, that I can take care of myself. So for me, it's a nuance of the word. And I know what how to take care of myself. And some people say, well, that's love. And I said, well, for me, love is a different type of force that if my soul is filled with love and my soul is, let's say, like an iPhone battery, that I can't charge myself. So my whole process of recovery was letting love in. I was like the kid in, you know, Pink Floyd bricks, you know, the wall where I just built bricks and that almost killed me. The isolation and the drugs were just pouring into this brick uh, cell or confinement. And now I knock bricks out of the wall to let the light of love, let others love me, let God's love into me to charge my battery. So I don't, you know, it's a nuance of the word, but self-love to me almost implies narcissism at the deep, at those extreme. So it's just a nuance. That's all. I, I really appreciate that. I want to speak to that because mm. he, I had to love myself first before I could let those bricks down to let the light in. Okay. So I want to talk for a minute about receiving because I have had experience and I'll share one that was visceral. I Here's my theory. Most of us are not receiving anything. And so I'm right there with you on that. And so while I've been loving myself, living alone and not dating, <laughs> the next part to it is learning to receive. And the biggest experience, so I turned 60 last April and my kids told me they had something planned for me. They're grown, they live on their own. And they know that I've always wanted to sing. I started taking voice lessons last year. Like music is a big part of my life. and two of my kids have sang in choirs and right. So singing's a thing. And I'm always wishing they'd sing for me. They're like, no, <laughs> so it turns out my daughters had two daughters and a son. One of my daughters overheard that my son was playing the guitar and actually singing his girlfriend told my daughter. So she orchestrated so that what they gave me was they texted me on my birthday. Each made a video of them singing to me. And when they came in, I was on my couch and they said, it's coming now. And I didn't even know it was a text. I'm like waiting for the door. And so the text comes in and they, my son was playing the guitar and he starts singing. Now they, they won't let me share them. If they'd already be all over the internet, if they would let me share oh, them, but it, this is no exaggeration. I could, I was fault. My knees were buckling. The first of love was something that I thought, oh shit, if that's receiving, <laughs> I um, have tears, tears. Play to that because I, I heard you speak about that on the stage. None of us are receiving. That's my theory. And I'm like, that's what I'm heading for. I got to strengthen up. Yeah. I was knocked over, knocked over. <laughs> so were you able to receive it though? And and I did, but I mean, I could bear, I was hyperventilating. You fought it. I fought it. And so then for the next few weeks, I would watch them now. And I mean, I, I let it in now I can watch them. And I sometimes still tear up. I sing along with them a lot. Like, I'm like, oh, I just sang with you. And I'm holding the phone and I'm singing and they're singing. So I continue to receive. So one of the most powerful things that I discovered by 
coaching coaches, you know, you teach best what you most need to learn, is Ooh. that there are many pictures of like me with our children or other people that when we go to the beach, one of the first things I do is stand with my arms open like this, which is to me the ultimate symbol of reception because just here I am and just this energy pours into me. I just, I'll do that in the woods. I'll do that, go stand on the deck. It's just a physical way for me to spiritually let that, that love in. You seem like Sammy doing that. Yeah. You know, I think talking back to the beginning of this part of our conversation, though, I think part of what I'm perceiving is value, value, perceiving myself as valuable and having value to give and being treated as though I'm valuable. And I wonder if that's different than love. Great, My, great question. I wonder <laughs> if it's an offshoot, a result of. Yeah. You know, so we're identifying so many little layers here. There's believing you're worthy, loving yourself, liking yourself, however you want to refer to it, allowing it in, mm -hmm. I separate things. And mm -hmm. then what you're talking about is acting in the world, putting yourself forward in the world in a way that only invites or only receives the good treatment. If it's not being, if you're not being treated well, you turn away. Mm -hmm. And I think there's another layer that I've talked with a lot of people I've coached, especially people on the team here um, and, and in the advocate role, but it's much more than being an advocate. It's finding your voice. And you were mentioning singing and your kids singing to you. And I have found my voice, you know, and I think I'm really blessed and really fortunate. I probably found it 20, 25 years ago in my role at CCAR that I knew I had something to say and my purpose became to carry the message of recovery and to coach recovery. Um, and I say Sandy always had a voice, but you're digging your voice in deeper and believing it and discovering who you are. Maybe it just takes a long time too before we find our voices, I'm not sure. And Kate, I think you're doing the same, aren't you? Yeah. So, I. I, I started the voice lessons because I want to um, strengthen my voice. I want to I want to pull my my message up from my belly. Like I want I want the strength. I want uh -huh. it to be so true and not from my head. And and I knew back in 2017 and 18 the work what that I was being called to do that I'm now doing. But I there was a big disconnect between my believability. I knew it. I knew it, so I fully believed it, but I didn't embody the confidence and the strength to bring it forward. And so that's what this work has been. It was very purposeful. Like I formed my company far before I actually started the work. So I was like, okay, I know what I'm supposed to do. It was really clear. God gave me these three memos, but yeah, I'm terrified, terrified. Well, you had and conversations so, with me back then when you were forming the company and all that. Yeah. Yeah, I was comfortable talking with you. I did a lot of pursuing of people, and then I kind of hunkered down, walked to the ocean, you know, showed up on Facebook Live. You just got to start doing it. 
<laughs> I don't want to give you guys, a, I, you know, I came running to you after your keynote, ran to the table where you were sitting with your book to just say, I was so moved. So what I witnessed in you two was you're eat, each your own voice, but a, but a, sh- a collected voice too, like, like a partnered voice. Mm-hmm. I mean, the way you love each other, dig on each other, humor, right? I mean, oh my gosh, so powerful. Mm-hmm. Witnessing each other, you know, allowing each other to be like, oh, really touched me. Well, I I appreciate that. Um, you know, it, it honestly was not a little over five years ago that I sat down to give a little mother-son talk before my son got married, our oldest son got married. And I was thinking I'd just give him a little bit of sweet advice from his mom who'd been married so long. And he pointed out the tension he observed in our relationship for years. And so, you know, truly, I think I shared at the conference, like it has been an evolution of what originally drew us together was that ability to be so vulnerable with each other, both of us exploring our own recovery and being able to share that with each other, and then getting caught up in the commitments of the world, the priorities of raising children, and, and losing sight of that connectedness. And the, the trail for Phil when he hiked it was a turning point, but really it covid brought us into more connection and and me leaving work that Phil referred to as drowning me with no lifeboat that he could provide that would get me out of there. Um, I think it's an evolution. So I just encourage people who are married, like it hasn't been 31 years of connected. Uh, 31, I just, well, in our relationship, I just added some years. <laughs> it hasn't been connected bliss all that time, but because we operate with the same recovery principles, the same faith principles, things never got really bad. That did they? No, but I I always think the thread that held us together is before we got married, we we made that commitment. It was it was a vow, and I think you might you know it was a vow that I spoke directly to your soul, and you spoke directly to my soul that. Well, there was only one reason why we would leave. Yeah, it was my reason. <laughs> and that's infidelity. Otherwise, the key to a, a, a mar- our longevity is we didn't quit. And then even when you felt like quitting, well, for me, it was like, we have to do something different. You know, what do we need to change up to make this? And, you know, Sandy talks about buying a white truck and taking a, rides to the beach every week so we could talk to each other. You know, and um, but then it's his idea. Why not see that she a coach? Yeah. How, how did she like turn this conversation about us? And now she's not. She's off the hook. She's not that. <laughs> no, no, I, I actually what I think huh? I witnessed as well that you guys are doing because I think first of all I think most marriages do that. You start out and then you do this because of what we put in the middle. Mm-hmm. The key is: do we come back? Mm-hmm. And is there? back to and or i mean some people never get to come back but they stay married oh it's like it's like not living right and so what i think is so cool i just did one of those um i just lost that again but um oh when i think phil's hike 
you had your own hike, Sandy. Yeah. yeah. Right. That's what's cool is staying individuals, mm-hmm. but gaining from each individual's journey. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean, it's so cool. I think too, one of the ways, and this ties into recovery coaching too, is we heard somewhere at a marriage seminar about if you have a problem, oftentimes couples will sit on one side or the other and they'll look at the problem while looking at each other. So the problem is between you. And and they said, the idea is let's both sit side by side on a couch, put the problem in front of us and discuss it that way. Which which for us is two recliners side by side or sitting in that white truck. Right. So the problem is not the barrier between us. We're on the same side looking at the problem together. And how can I figure this out? Well, I want to ask you if this would work. I want to, um, with that, using that analogy. So I have a husband whose wife is an alcoholic, right? And I'm helping them both. Wouldn't it be cool if the husband and wife sat like that and looked at alcoholic alcoholism as the problem instead of the person? Right. Mm-hmm. Right. Wow. I might borrow that one, Philip. No, uh, that's what they're out there for, right? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Because it, why put that? Yeah. That's a great analogy. And that's a lot of what coaching does because, you know, we sit together with the person say here's they share what their difficulty is, and we explore ways to move around it, conquer it, uh, deal with it, and come up with solutions. That's what coaching is. Right. Because the opposite, which is the world right now, is husband and wife are sitting at the table, and in the husband's mind, if the wife's the alcoholic, she, she's over here as a person, but she's the thing in the middle as well. <laughs> it's like, no, that's the reframe. That's the reframe that I'll spend the rest of my life. I'll die trying to reframe that. That's all. Um, so you have a company. It's called what? It's Tipping Point Recovery because, you know, creating a tipping point is when you change some action. Small. I read a quote that Bill White wrote, the recovery initiative tipping point, right? A recovery coach, something about recovery coaching is the recovery initiative tipping point, can be the recovery initiative tipping point. And that's when I was working in the ER and I was, yeah. So I discovered tipping point. I did not plan tipping point uh-huh. at all. In fact, I didn't, I was too afraid for a couple of years and I was, but in the ER doing the intervention, engaging a lot of people because we changed the question from what, from, do you want help to, would you speak to an addict? So we engaged them all. Uh-huh. And um, of course I defined engagement to just talking to me at some level. And a large percentage, probably 75% of the individuals I was engaging, which was up to 200 over two years, would say to me, could you talk to my family? And honestly, my first reaction was, hell yeah, I'll talk to your family. Give them to me. Uh-huh. I I was a little nervous. I remember saying, I'll tell them the truth, though. And they would say, what is that? What do you mean? I said that we lie, that we minimize. That we justify, right? right? That our disease does this. And they all would say, yeah, I get it. When we want to recover, we are happy that someone's telling our families what's going on. (laughs) When we want to use, we don't like our families anywhere near the solution. Right? Yeah. Mm. So I I was running a support group for families. Literally, all I was doing 
was trying to help them be less mad at their person uh-huh. because I saw so much anger that I realized they're self-destructing and you're angry and that does not equal recovery. So I would just literally, they'd say, he's such an asshole. He's such a liar. And I'd say, let me tell you how I'm a liar. Let me tell you how I was a jerk. I wanted to widen the lens for these families. I wanted them to stop just seeing their person as the problem. And I wanted them to see we're all that way. And I also wanted to teach families what I was learning in the hall. When I heard I had a drinking, a thinking problem and not a drinking problem, I remember thinking, why did my, why does my family not know that? To me, it is an absolute disservice and the world is complicit. Why are we not teaching families what we are learning inside our treatment and the halls? And so that's what we do. Yeah, because one day at this conference table, after two years, I looked around and I realized everybody's loved one was on a path and I had not met half of them. So simply by changing the people okay. in the system, it's like a law. We like to say too that... Um family members are really surprised when you shift the conversation from stopping your family member. Well, you want to tell your family member what to do and why they should do it and expect them to do it. And we say, what's the best question you might be able to ask them? And it changes them from like, uh, how can I help you with your recovery today? Imagine a family member saying that or something along those lines. What does recovery look like for you? How are you feeling today? Would you like that to change? How could I help you do that? It's a yeah. much different conversation. Yeah, I'll, I'll add to that. I love this, Phil. Um, it is a very much, and so in order for a family to be ready to do that or even able to take a moment to step out of their own pain to say that, mm-hmm. I tell families, keep your stuff over here or there, wherever your thing is, but get it off your person. Don't put your stuff on them. Another question I love families asking is, what are the drugs doing for you? Or what is the alcohol doing for you, right? Seek to understand. Another one is, talk about your own recovery. Say, God, I just went to a meeting. Now I get why you don't want to go to one. Mm -hmm. Even if that's not true, right? I just went to a meeting, holy crap, this stuff's hard. And I often think people underestimate how much that person's addiction is doing for you. Like there are some behaviors that that loved ones carry that benefit in some ways from the disease. So, oh. yeah, do you have an example? Well, I was a crisis junkie. So, you know, I was in a long-term relationship with an active alcoholic and those moments of crisis made me feel alive, figuring out what I could do next. His desperation and, and love for me in the deep stupor, putting me on a pedestal, trying to keep me. I must be valuable. So there's a whole lot of things that his addiction did for me in the moment. No lasting it, impact. So in our first two trainings, we have a 12-week program that's our flagship program that we've been working on for years. And the first couple of trainings are about, first we talk about the alcoholic and what their loop is. What you know, what's What are they getting out of it? That alcohol is not the problem, right? We know that, but the families don't know that yet. What do they do? What are they getting out of it? And then what are you? what's your loop? What are you getting? 
And we ask people to fire themselves or resign from the role of case manager or counselor or recovery coach uh -huh. here, you know, it, which I was in that relationship, right? I was like, oh, I'll take care of this. We're all set. Uh -huh. no, he wasn't having it. And so, yeah, but it, then you need the strength. But that's the, that's the, that's what we do is we take families that are kind of enmeshed, we pull them apart and show them what are they addicted to or help them see. Uh -huh. And the ones that get ready to do that, man, end up being grateful for the whole process because they find themselves again. Yeah. You know, uh, the last few years I've worked with young adults and their families are desperate to keep their child alive i think with what we see in the culture the amount of overdoses the the number of suicides in that population um so just curious what your experience is working with that families with that demographic yeah so we have the 12-week program and then we have a 12-month program which honestly from the 12 week about 70 percent of people stick around because uh -huh. they Fortunately, right? They're like, okay, I get it. And we have a handful of, a lot of parents, probably more than 50% are parents, but a lot of them are spouses or siblings or something. But the parents, yeah. And I think I try to help families. We call that out. I know what it feels like to try to keep someone alive. Because honestly, when I worked on that grant, I definitely fell into that role for a month or two. I caught myself where I really thought I was keeping all these people alive. Mm -hmm. What happens is you you don't breathe. You literally don't breathe a full breath when you're trying to keep someone alive. So we hold space. It, it's a common theme in our 12-month program. Are you trying to keep someone alive? And they may even identify it. Oh, I just caught myself trying to keep someone alive. So we, yeah, we name it. And then we say, I get that. No one should be shamed for that. That's what how we're wired. Yeah. Yeah. And we're supposed to keep our people alive. So don't Shane, beat yourself up for wanting that. My head is like going in a lot of different directions right now. So I don't know, know what trail to go down. Well, I'm curious what you're hoping for next. So we have programs for families and now we have um, a service for treatment centers. Mm -hmm. We've just started to onboard a couple of treatment centers and we have a handful that are curious um, to out to be a third party support and education for the families. Because my vision is when someone goes to treatment, take Johnny here and you guys go over here. And it's it's a requirement. The first treatment center we onboarded is making it a requirement for families to attend at least four of the trainings. Mm -hmm. um, and we do, we're really clear that it's partly support, but it's education. Because none of us really understand this disease. And, and we, you know, no one wants to help their loved one with cancer without understanding what the treatment is. So uh -huh. we want to give, we want families to give each other casserole. <laughs> I've been saying for years in the future of tipping point, I want there to be when someone enrolls, they get a casserole. Yeah, there you go. There was a time when most treatment programs had a family component. When the person went away for 28 days, the family program was a part of the person. Um, it was just assumed that the family would attend. As they started to cut back resources and payment, family programs were the first to go. And now I see, um, so I'm actually kind of 
encur I am encouraged that you are finding a market to deliver this program again, and and it's very cool. Yeah. Uh, so you have way more history around when that used to be a more of a thing. I'm sure, and I'd love to chat sometime with you about that. I know the the handful, you know, eight or ten that we've been talking to used to have one in Colvin stopped it. Uh -huh. The in person, and then to be quite honest, the biggest pain I'm hearing case managers and counselors have around family is they can't manage the families, right? They're trying to treat the person and the okay. family's blowing them up or they can't find them and they need help setting a boundary. So it's really critical. So it does, we also lower um, people leaving against medical advice when they, when we have the family, uh -huh. we have, you know, crazy win-win-win, uh, right? For all of us. So I'm encouraged as well. And that's what we'd be, that's what we'd like to position ourselves to be able to scale in the future is, um, helping treatment centers have that spot. I think that family support and their own recovery, finding their own recovery in all of this, because a lot of the things are behaviors that probably enabled the foothold that addiction takes. And my last question is, you, you are a person in recovery. You have a lived experience in recovery from an addiction. And now you're working with family members and you're really called strongly to that role. How was your family in your yeah. recovery journey? Love it. <laughs> um, we have, so the term I use is we learn how to have recovery conversation. And I certainly, I don't ever force anyone to come to the table. Like I used to try to force people to come to the table, so, but honestly, my work has really helped myself and my children because they were the ones I was hurting the most. They were teenagers and early twenties when I was in my end um, of struggles. And so when your mom lies to you, it kind of messes you up. It doesn't teach you how to trust people. And so we used the, the, the principles that I've discovered from our program in my family and have conversations. Um, let me give you a perfect example, you guys. My son got married a few months ago and they announced their engagement about six months ago and he was the first of our three to be married and we were all excited and then he announced to me that he wanted to elope, that they were going to elope. And so he was in my kitchen having lunch with me when he told me and I had a sadness that came over me. I didn't even expect it, but I also had such admiration for them to do what they wanted to do. So I looked at him and this is a recovery conversation. It's not about drugs and alcohol, but it's the effect of the work we've done. I said, whoa, I need a minute. I don't expect that. Oh my God, my eyes are filled up with tears. I'm having a reaction to this. And then I quickly turned and I said, but I don't want my reaction to influence you. And he said, yep, former people pleaser over here watching your reaction, <laughs> not wanting it to influence my decision. And I said, as much as I feel, I'm going to put it aside. I'm so flipping happy that you guys are doing what you want to do. And it was, I mean, that's not how we used to talk. <laughs> and so that's the effect of my recovery in my family, at least with my kids, is we talk about things. All things. Yeah. Well, Art Witter taught me, too, that we teach best what we most need to learn. And, and... I think this whole journey for me, 24 years now at the Connecticut Community for Addiction Recovery, has taught me so much 
um, because I needed to learn so much. And um, that process continues to this day to have conversations about what does truth telling actually entail? What is self-love? What do you mean by that? You know, are there different forms of love? Like we know there are. I mean, these conversations are deep, recovery-oriented, and how we communicate can only benefit not just our recovery, but it benefits the world. So for I just think of your son to have a mom to say that to and to have that honest, open reaction. And what you also demonstrated is what I believe the process of recovery is, a journey towards self-awareness to becoming more self-aware. And how self-aware was that to say everything you just did? It's incredible. Mm -hmm. Kate, we yep. so enjoyed this conversation. Any last thing you would like to add? I enjoyed it too. No, just that I enjoyed it too. I guess I will wrap with um, everyone deserves a path. Whatever that path is, because the path is really just home. It's for you home. So mm -hmm. anybody that's listening to your beautiful talks, I would just say, welcome home. Just the idea that you might want it is a start. I love that. All right. Yeah. Okay. Thank you, guys. Thank you, Kate. Have a great Bye day. Bye-bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to the Recovery Matters podcast. We hope that you have connected in some way with what you've heard. For more information, you can find us on the web at ccar.us like and follow us on twitter and facebook at ccar the number four recovery and on instagram at recovery matters podcast and you can use the hashtag recovery first to show support for our mission have questions comments feedback email us at podcast at ccar.us Fire feeds fire, so if yours is burning right now, reach out and share it with someone.